0: Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Catherine Demers, a cardiologist, researcher, and professor of medicine at McMaster University. She leads a heart failure clinic, which sees patients with various serious heart conditions. We try to reveal the roadmap for heart failure and what to expect along the various stages from early, middle, late, and end of life. Hi, I'm Xian Xiao.
1: And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience.
0: The waiting room revolution starts right now. Catherine, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me
2: today. I'm uh, really grateful uh, to join you today.
0: Catherine, as a cardiologist, you see patients with various heart conditions like chronic heart failure, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, coronary artery disease and various other things. What is it like to care for these patients? So
2: I've been practicing for over 25 years and um, I've been interested in patients with heart failure that have complex disease. So often um, people that uh, may have had misdiagnosis or have a complex presentation And uh, often this leads to um, more, um, uh, you know, very uh, heavy management of heart failure. So a lot of medications involve a lot of visits, a lot of blood work, a lot of tests. Uh, Some patients get better. Some patients uh, feel uh, slightly better, but not that much. And some people actually get worse. And um, the people who get worse, well, some of them we can offer uh, heart transplantation, if they're young and they don't have any major issues um, and or maybe what we call love or assist devices. But unfortunately, most of the patients when they get uh, closer to the end of their disease, we, we have to make sure that they're comfortable uh, and that they're able to be with their loved ones and to uh, limit uh, too much testing or, or, or unnecessary procedures at end of life.
1: Catherine, we are going to ask you everything about heart failure, and you're the perfect person because of the work you've done. Um, You and I go back some years uh, talking about how we can improve the heart failure experience for patients and families, Um, and we're excited to pick your brain today. Like, How often do we get to sit with a cardiologist with your kind of skill and be able to just not hold back and just ask you everything. So, so here we go. <laughs> um, okay. So, I, so for our, um, listeners who many of them are citizens, patients, families, caregivers, if you were to describe the heart failure journey to, um, the average person, um, c- can you describe it to us? So so heart failure
2: uh, you know one is like is a negative term. so so I want to say that heart failure is so people present at all ages mostly older though it affects mostly older people but it can affect younger people and even kids. Um, so we see that the, the they present with difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing at nighttime with legs that are swollen, and eventually they get better when we start medication. And, and we have um, a lot of medications now that are proven to help with not only with symptoms and quality of life, but also with uh, prolonging life, preventing hospital stays, um, and, and uh, uh, making sure they're better. We also have devices like defibrillators and resynchronization pacemakers that also helps uh, help the patients uh, survive and, and get better. So, so we know that when we use all these uh, medications and devices uh, together, patients are going to feel better and their likelihood of getting worse or in hospital or dying of the disease is decreased dramatically. So, so we've made a huge amount of, um, of improvement from that perspective. Unfortunately, some patients uh, at one point, uh, they start getting worse. So the kidney function gets worse. They don't tolerate the medication as well. They start getting uh, shocks from their defibrillators. They, they keep coming in and out of the hospital. Uh, and that's when we start getting concerned and if um, thinking you know do we have other options and, and starting to, to discuss that you know things are getting worse and, and we need to talk about uh, what are their goals and to make sure that they're they have a good quality of life so, so that's that's what I how would I would summarize um, okay. how I approach it
1: So it sounds like people will present with some symptoms and then there's like some activity around getting them on all the right medications and stabilizing, you know, that first presentation. And then um, you maximize uh, the therapies to try to keep them as stable for as long as possible. Uh, and then at some point, I'm just paraphrasing you at some point in the illness journey, they start running into trouble again and have these, um, exacerbations, uh, which you continue to try to manage their symptoms and, uh, try to prolong life as much as possible. But inevitably some people will move into the more, um, advanced stage and, uh, some will pass away from heart failure. I'm just wondering if you could tell us what, and again, we won't hold you to the statistics, but on average, would you what percent of people after their first presentation of heart failure were, will actually be cured? What percent of people will be stabilized and it's just chronic forever? And what percent of people will actually have a downward trend over time? So so
2: it's kind of difficult to say.
1: We uh, we know um, uh, that
2: that some patients, for example, as long as they're on the medication, the pumping function goes back to normal and and they do well, they have a normal life and and it's it's very unlikely that they're they're going to get worse. Um, so, So it's really important that people do take their medication and that the medication are affordable. So that's like PharmaCare is so important to to people um, out of the hospital so that they can afford those medications. Um, So the ones that we see um, that when they they start having events that when they start getting worse, that's when we want to see them in the heart function clinic Uh, people, these are the people I want to see as a a heart failure specialist to make sure they're on all the best medications. There might be clinical trial drugs that we can start or or use um, and, and always look at all the different options. And I'd say uh, it, it's really tough to say, you know, who's not going to respond, but the, we always look for some signs of, of, of worsening, worsening mm-hmm. kidney function, not able to tolerate the medication, blood pressure is low, uh, mm-hmm. they keep coming into the hospital. And that's really tough to say, you know, how many people are gonna get there. Many people don't, uh, but when we get to that stage, we really need to get heart failure specialists involved to make sure that we've optimized all their medications, and that we know that the the all the options are there for them. And then we also need to realize that at one point they they might not do as well, and to start at least discussing you know what what an end of life might look like, look like for them
1: when people have heart failure and they're first diagnosed, okay, what are the kinds of things that you are monitoring to tell you and to tell them if things are getting worse or not?
2: Okay, so that's a really good question. So first, you know, I want to make sure it's the right diagnosis. So I want to make sure that you know it is a heart failure and it's not a, another it's a not another breathing problem or there's not something going on with their thyroid gland or their blood count and some you know some other reason why they might feel tired or short of breath so I want to make sure that we we really clear that and then when I've confirmed the diagnosis sometimes it's even tricky for me even though I have tons of experience I have patients I see I'm like it takes me maybe a little couple visits to figure out yeah they do have heart failure or they don't I always check their kidney function so with uh, blood work I check their I always also have an, uh, an echocardiogram an ultrasound of the heart that's like a basic uh a need for any patients with heart failure. And because you have different kinds of heart failure, you have heart failure with a normal pumping function and you have a heart failure with reduced pumping function. You also have issues with valves. So you might have a leaky valve, a leaky mitral valve, a leaky tricuspid valve, or a tight valve. You might have a tight aortic valve and that's aortic stenosis. So that actually can be fixed. And then you might have mitral stenosis. And again, if that's severe, that also can be fixed and we can cure your heart failure. And you might have significant vessel disease and then you might need to get bypass surgery. And again, we can fix the heart failure with that. And for those that, you know, those are not issues, we can definitely, you know, again, use the medication but we will watch the echo. We will watch the symptoms. We're going to look for leg swelling, shortness of breath, and as I mentioned, we're going to check your blood pressure on your a regular uh, basis, your heart rate, and we're going to also make sure that your kidney function and potassium remain in, a, in an acceptable range.
1: Okay, so um, the things you so that's amazing. It sounds like when someone first presents with what looks like heart failure and you sort it out and it truly is heart failure, you're looking for the cause of the heart failure. And sometimes people are lucky enough when caught early that you can fix the cause. Like you said, like uh, a valve problem or a rate heart rate beating problem or something like that. Um, Okay. And so uh, at, is it possible though that, even though those things are fixed, like a leaky valve or a tight valve, that they could still develop heart failure down the road?
2: So let's say, you know, like you fix the valve with a, a, a new aortic valve, uh, eventually, you know, hopefully that valve's going to last 10, 15, 20 years. Sometimes it can happen that uh, that valve might need to be replaced and it, it, it down the road and at that point it might present with heart failure again or or rarely yeah. we can see that a valve you know a valve that's been replaced gets infected and, and we that's why we ask people to make sure they have good dental health a good mm-hmm. dental hygiene to make sure that there's no risk of getting the valve infected but that that can always happen but we always were hopeful that they, they they stay healthy and they, they stay out of heart failure that they don't have to see me in clinic
1: yeah uh, if you've done a good job they don't have to see you <laughs> that's <laughs> <Okay>. right <laughs> oh so but um the people that do continue to have to see you you're following their echocardiograms and looking at their pumping function you're following their kidney failure their symptoms their vital signs and their function to try to gauge whether or not you have stabilized the heart failure or if it's advancing into new chapters. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, and one thing I forgot to mention is like, you know, the symptoms, how they feel, you know, their shortness of breath, the leg swelling, uh, what they're able to do, how much walking they're able to do. Uh, and I always, um, they, their weight, you know, like making sure that they self-manage so that they would measure their weights every day in the morning. And if they see that their weight's going up, they're more short of breath, their, their legs are more swollen, then to, that triggers uh, potentially a call to their family doctor, or you know their ability to change their own diuretic, but they need to be aware that's, that's their condition getting worse and that they need to do something quickly about it so they don't end up in the hospital.
1: So there's um, the responsibility of the physician to follow along certain things to uh, track how the person's doing, but there's also patient and family responsibility for what you called self-management. So
0: that's right. So
2: that's
1: really key. Uh, yeah. We
2: want to encourage patients to that's like key to any chronic disease management like it is for diabetes or COPD is recognizing the symptoms when you're getting worse. In heart failure, it's the same thing. We want patients to be aware of the symptoms of when they're getting worse and like to actually do something about it and be aware of the potential triggers. You know, if they're having um, uh, a a huge amount of uh, drinking a lot, and that might, you know, if we're giving a a water pill, it's because we're trying to get rid of the water. So they've suddenly um, gone to uh, a restaurant and they ate or drank more than they used to, that might trigger a, a. worsening heart failure, if they have an irregular rhythm, like you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, that might be a reason why they have a trigger. So when they're getting worse, to make sure that they they know to consult their physician, that not or their nurse practitioner or their nurse clinician or their physician assistant, but just making sure they reach out so that they don't end up in the emergency room or in the hospital.
0: So Catherine, here's my question. So we like to say that, you know, there's a natural, uh... know a natural history of heart failure. And it sounds like if I'm listening to you, there's different types of heart failure and some can be cured. But if you find out you have one of these that um, is going to progress, I guess in some ways I should start there of how do you know? But there's like a beginning, a middle, a late stage, and even an end stage of heart failure. And I think what I've heard from many patients and families is while you're talking about the physiological or the symptoms, like what they don't know is how does, what, are, what should I expect in those stages of how my life will be different? So if, I'm, what I think I heard you say, if you, is at the beginning, you might have shortness of breath. And if I give you medications, you're going to be okay. You'll be able to do the same stuff, maybe not, you know, run a marathon, but you should be able to live pretty actively. Like, how do you know if you're moving into the middle and late stage and how will that affect your life? Like what kind of decisions are you going to have to do things different?
2: So so now like what we call, we have like four, medi- you know, like what we call the four pillars of heart failure uh, medication. And then those like all the patients should be on that as long as their kidney functions good, their blood pressure is good, potassium is okay. So if they, and they need to be on the maximum dose and then and we're having challenges uh, getting patients on those uh, medications first and getting them up titrated to the level it should be. Um, so the first thing is making sure that they're well treated. You know, making sure that they have the best drugs, what's guideline directed. And then when when they're on those drugs and they're still having symptoms, then they might need a bit of tweaking. So so they need to see a specialist maybe, and then they, they might need to see a heart failure specialist at one point. So usually uh, I end up seeing patients that, that or, you know, the whole range. So I see some younger patients in their twenties that present with heart failure, which is really unusual. And they potentially end up uh, sometimes with heart transplant and some others actually do better and they lead a normal life. They, they're they like social workers, their moms, uh, they exercise and so on. Um, uh, And um, what really, what concerns me is when they start, we see a change in their kidney function or their blood pressure starts getting low or I'm having to decrease the dose of their medication. That's a sign to me that things are getting a bit worse. And then we need to, and then I start seeing them more and having to adjust their medication more. So that's kind of a sign that things might be getting worse uh, they they um, they might feel that you know in their daily life they they are a bit short of breath when they're going upstairs uh, they're having some trouble you know making the bed or doing groceries and and needing a bit more help uh, from people around them uh, and then when um, the symptoms get difficult to control you know when the the, they don't respond to, to the regular water pills, then we have to increase the dosage. We have to be on large doses and even on intravenous dosage. There's sometimes some difficulty to control symptoms when we get to that stage of life. And, um, and, and then we, we really want to focus on making sure the symptoms are controlled. And, and from personal experience with my father who passed away from heart failure, you know, when, at one point there was a plan, oh, let's back off on the diuretics and, and uh, to, to preserve the kidney function. And, and, and it wasn't good because he wasn't feeling well. And he said, my legs are so swollen, I can't walk. And I kept saying, no, no, the important right now, the thing that's really important for him is able to being able to walk around the apartment, being comfortable, his breathing being comfortable, even though his renal function wasn't, uh, wasn't really, was really deteriorating in the last couple months.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and really focusing on making sure that the patients are, are comfortable at home, so.
1: So it sounds like at some point in the heart failure journey, um, the heart, the, the symptoms of heart failure um, win over preserving the kidney function. That um, that becomes a priority, but I was wondering, CN, if you were wondering how the patients know they're moving through the illness journey. It sounds like Catherine uh, has described multiple ways that she, as a clinician, knows that the person's worsening over time. Um, and I heard you say, Catherine, that some of the things the patients and families might begin to understand is that at the beginning of the illness, you. You try to get them on the right medications and they go up, up, up the medications. And that's not because they're getting worse. That's because, you know, from science and research that you need to get them to certain doses and hope that they can get there um, and still feel well. But one sign that maybe patients and families don't realize is that if you get up there and the person's not feeling well or tolerating those medications, and they start needing to come down, 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 that's a little bit of a sign I'm hearing that maybe a person's not doing as well with their heart failure.
2: So so there are different things, you know, like seeing that your breathing is a bit worse, your legs are more swollen. um, Mm -hmm. You seem to uh, you've been stable on the drugs, and now like it seems like it's not doing the trick anymore. It seems like the doctor needs to increase the the water pill a bit more, or because the blood pressure is low, is in the 80s. Uh, so that's what you know, like blood pressure in the 90s for me. As long as you're not feeling dizzy, I'm okay with that. Of blood pressure in the 80s—that's concerning, and and that's the the other concern is the risk of falls and injuring yourself at home.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so I want to make sure that I might have to back off a bit on mm-hmm. on my medication that helps the pumping function, but keep the diuretic on board, the water pill on mm-hmm. board, to make sure that you know, their legs don't start swelling up mm-hmm. and deep and then they're not short of breath, they're able to, to lie in bed to sleep, they don't need to, to, you know, sleep in their lazy boy. So I always talk about the lazy boy sign where people have to sleep in their recliner because they're, they're, uh, their symptoms of shortness of breath are so bad. Mm-hmm. So, so when, when the patients are noticing that they're they have to prop up their head to sleep, or you know they can't walk to the bathroom. That they're short of breath, so that you know they need to seek help. They need to reach out. Mm-hmm. And then with COVID, what happened is we had a lot of patients who were older. They were scared of coming to the hospital,
0: mm-hmm. and we would
2: see them come in, and they they'd have like um, their they, they, their shoes wouldn't fit anymore because their mm-hmm. legs were so swollen. Their legs were weeping. Uh, they were sleeping in the recliner. So we want to make sure people don't wait that long so that we can help them uh, before you know they end up in the hospital and if they need to come to the hospital they need to come and make sure we're going to help them uh, you know get that fluid off and make them feel a bit better
1: so if a patient's requiring more and more and more diuretics to keep them balanced sounds like that's a sign that things are getting more tricky, that they're moving through the heart failure chapters.
2: Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. so if you're using, uh, so usually we use furosemide, which is Lasix, and then uh, we're at the high dose of furosemide and that, that's not enough. So then we switch them to something else called bumetonide which works better because it's better absorbed but it's it's limited we can't use it in everyone or we have to combine it with another diuretic like hydrochlorothiazide or metolazone
1: mm-hmm. and
2: then sometimes that's not enough we have to use intravenous and we can use intravenous at home if the symptoms aren't controlled with the medication by mouth then we have the intravenous at home we can get a pick line or a midline so these mm-hmm. special Lines, intravenous lines that are permanent, so that the patients can be at home uh, with their loved ones and their staff, uh, their dogs, their cats, uh, watching their TV, um, watching their shows, eating the food they like, not the Mm -hmm. hospital food, um, and, and keeping them out of the hospital by using intravenous diuretics. It's been tough with the pandemic again for home care, and and with you know our new government that's been elected, we really need to push to have home care and palliative care, and making sure people can be at home. So that's so important instead of having them in the hospital.
1: Mm -hmm. So as people are changing, and you're following along, and they might be picking up on the um, changes that are happening. At what point do you uh, invite people into a conversation, Catherine, about the fact that this heart failure is moving from chapter to chapter?
2: So that's a really good question. And we actually did some some research on that a few years ago. And, and uh, um, so I think it's really asking people, do they know, like, what do they know about where they are? You know, the critical illness conversation. So, so where, where do you think you are? Um, how do you feel right now? How do you feel things are going? Um, yeah, kind of getting a sense of, of um uh reaching out figuring out where where they are and -hmm. making sure we're on the same level Mm -hmm. and if i see that this and looking at expectations you know what are their expectations what do they understand of uh, where they are in the disease so that's the first thing because you know you can talk about end of life but if the person isn't there isn't ready to talk about it then then um you know then we need to talk a bit more about how things are going where we are with the medication and then maybe the next visit talk a bit more again about you know what what do you understand how do you feel how do you feel this is going and i've had patients where you know i wanted to have that discussion and they weren't ready they didn't want to talk about it and then i, I left it and then um, uh, they, they wanted to see someone else because they, they were they, within the heart function clinic because they weren't ready to have that discussion, which is fine. And I'm, I'm fine with that um, because it is tough. And again, my father came to a presentation I did on end of life at, uh, the, at a Canadian meeting. And, and he was like, well, I, I, he said, he stood up. He was a pediatric cardiologist. And he said uh, he didn't want to hear about the bad things initially he, he he didn't want to hear about his prognosis is how many years he was going to live and because we're really bad at predicting that in heart failure we we're not we're not good it's not that like can not as good as cancer where we know when you don't people don't respond to chemotherapy this is what's going to happen in the next few mm-hmm. days so. mm-hmm. but in heart failure I, I try to you know check in with them you know where where are you what's your understanding and and uh, when you have that open discussion, they'll answer that question back to you and say, "Hey, mm-hmm. Doctor Damaris, how do you find I'm doing?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and they know me well enough at one point to to say, um, "You know, you're starting to do more tests, or you're starting to uh, to change these medications. What mm-hmm. does that mean?" Mm-hmm. So comfortable enough to ask me those questions. Mm-hmm. So the patients need to be asked questions. You know, they need to mm-hmm. ask their doctors. Mm -hmm. you know uh, what does it mean when you're changing my medication Mm -hmm. what does it mean when uh uh you're you're repeating an ultrasound or Mm -hmm. uh asking questions why the tests are being done asking questions why the medication is being adjusted is it just standard care or is it the situation is getting worse
1: yeah because often um people will get some information but they don't really get the meaning of it So when people, doctors say, okay, we're doing another test or we're changing the dose, or by the way, your potassium is this level, or by the way, your creatinine and your kidneys are at this level, people feel they're getting information, but what they don't realize they're not getting is the meaning of it. And so um, it sounds like you encourage people to seek um, more than just the information, but you want them to have the meaning of all of this as well. Um, the one thing I was going to, um, ask you about, cause you mentioned prognosis is I'm going to tell you what I tell people and you can tell me if I need to course correct. Okay. So for those people that aren't cured of their heart failure, the underlying cause of the heart failure can't be cured. And they're going to go through a progressive journey over time. I tell people that at the beginning, really the only thing we Can rely on in terms of a timeline is um, population statistics and I know there's been a lot of changes with groovy medications like Entresto and other types of interventions but generally speaking when I went through medical school people talked about the fact that heart failure had an average timeline and I know this isn't perfect but once you have non-curable heart failure that your timeline is somewhere around five to 10 years.
2: So that's, that's changed. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are numbers before what we call quadruple therapy. Uh, So I actually don't quote that almost. So I usually say five to 10 years if you're not well treated. Um, Yeah. So with the new medications, we definitely have seen a big change of people's pumping function, recovering, and, and really preventing heart failure, hospitalization, and delaying death in a major way. So so those numbers, I'm always really uh, um, I, I'm, I'm careful about using them uh, because they were pre for that four medication combination we use.
1: Uh, and I'm it- going to push you on this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's not easy to get people on the quadruple doses. Okay. So what you're saying is if you can get people to the ceiling of the quadruple therapy without tipping them into side effects, those people's average prognosis is better than what I just quoted. What percent of what percent of people though, Catherine, and you don't have to be exact, get to that though. So I think I think the um,
2: I think I would say probably eighty percent of patients okay. are able to get on on mm-hmm. all the medications, and I think there's a big problem with inertia. So mm-hmm. so the, this lack of getting patients to the maximum tolerated dose, getting patients on the right medication. So for example, switching them from uh, uh, ACE inhibitors, uh, uh, ARBs to trust switching mm-hmm. them, making sure they're on the proper beta blocker, they're on a good dose. which making sure they're on what we call an, S, you know, a jardian or you know, dapagliflozin and mm-hmm. So we have a lot of one is getting patients on the right medication. Lots of patients, like you said, are not on the right medications. So their doctors, their nurse practitioners, their physician assistants, they really need to get them on the right dosage of the right medication. And again, like it's this inertia. I just need to see the doctor once a year. And what happens in Canada is we have a lot of people traveling to the US. So they don't want any change done three months before they go to the US. Uh, Yeah. Like six months
1: at least where there's no change. So So if you can get them there um, and we can take away the barriers that get them there, instead of saying the average person has five to 10 years, how much has this bought people? You don't, again, have to be exact, but instead of five to 10 years, we know it's not curable, but does that stretch it to 10 to 20 years? So I I would probably
2: say that, you know, like I look at my, for example, some younger patients that I've followed now for 20 years okay, um, and they have these big hurts and, and they're doing well. You know, they have families, they're working, um, uh, and, and uh, they, they've, they've like stayed out of trouble. They haven't, uh, and, and it's definitely, if we look at heart transplant for younger patients that are sick and that are eligible for heart transplant, it dramatically decreased. That's I mean, what like, I was gonna ask
1: transplant. you. I was gonna ask you that. So what, wh- how, how would someone know if they're eligible for heart transplant? Like what does that person look like? So,
2: so there's an age age range. Uh, So 65 is usually the cutoff uh, because we know that older people don't do as well uh, with with our transplant. If you have, um, uh, for example, um, uh, you need to make sure that you're able to take your medication regularly. Uh, It's not, it's on its own, you know, you need to be able to go to appointments, uh, get the cardiac uh, checkups uh, regularly uh, and then there, if there are issues, uh, you know, severe complications from other diseases, some, sometimes mm-hmm. if you have diabetes and there's some issues with um, uh, blockages of the vessels of your legs or your kidney function is really bad. So those are kind of the, the different issues we look at, at, look like, and also if you're, you know, you, you have a supportive uh, uh, household. Um, and so, so that's kind of what we look at. Um, and of course, those, that's limited. You know, we don't have many organs left and that, that's why making sure people are on the, the best medication is, is the, advised time. And uh, uh, so for older people, which is most of the people with heart failure, uh, heart transplant isn't an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why in that population specifically, we need to make sure that they're on the right drugs and they, mm-hmm. they need to be at the right level of the drugs.
1: OK, um,
2: it's a lot of visits to the doctor or the nurse to get that updated.
1: Yeah, I really liked what you were talking about before too, Catherine about acknowledging the um, caregivers and the family members in this whole heart failure journey um, that um, you and you acknowledge the fact that a, a person needs people around them to support them through the heart failure journey and um, that they deserve as much information as the patient, him or herself, right? I mean, the caregivers are often wondering, what's this gonna look like for me? Uh, So what do you tell caregivers? Like when they say, "Um, excuse me, uh, where am I in all of this?
2: So that's such an important question because um, we know, first of all, that people that are alone, Um, tend to not do as well so 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 you know finding a way you know um, to have volunteers maybe to to you know visit these people and and watch out for them would be so important Uh, uh, so that would be one thing but like if you and then you need to make sure that those caregivers aren't burning out so especially when the patients are sicker at the end of life making sure that there's proper support because sometimes it can be morning, at night, and, and, and you're, you're there all the time. They're not eating well. So you need to make sure that they're, they're, uh, they're around. Sometimes they also feel stressed. They feel that they're, the patient feels that they're a burden, that they, they request too much help. And then there's been a lot of, uh, there's been some research showing that although the patient might uh, perceive that they're a burden, if you look at the caregiver burden scales, they're not that high um mm-hmm. because people feel that it's uh an obligation and they want to care for their loved ones uh, that's really important to them and being part of the journey and 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 I find one thing that's really important is respecting the caregiver so mm-hmm. if their caregiver is speaking on behalf of of the patient and they're saying you know I find that this medication doesn't seem to work for them or I find that they they they're worse or really listening you know hearing what the caregiver has to say mm. they, they know that person so well and they know them a lot better than the the family doctor the cardiologist the physician assistant the nurse that take care of them it's it's that person is so important they know what drugs they've been on they know what uh, when they've been in the hospital what went well or didn't go well and we really need to listen to them and hear what they have to say and I've been uh uh I've had an experience myself where I, I, with my father, where at one point I was really surprised on how a healthcare professional um, reacted to me. Of course, you know, I'm very knowledgeable and all that, but I was, I felt that uh, uh, a bit put down, I, I, that I wasn't respected as a, as a caregiver. And, and, I, and I really, that's really, really important.
0: So for your dad's situation where he wanted to be hopeful, at what point did you feel like you were using a palliative approach to care? At what point did you feel like he realized, look, this isn't going to be better. These are you need to change your goals.
2: Uh, I think it was like three, four months before him dying, but he still like for for me like palliative care doesn't mean no care, you know. Like so, so I've tried to say that to so many people. So he had this massive nosebleed, and and I said we have to go to the hospital. He says yeah but i'm dying and i'm like no we have to go because you know this is something we can fix and so we got that fixed quickly brought him back home uh he had like a, a pneumonia and he's like well you know i said well we can just give an antibiotic if you do better than and that that actually bought him you know a week a week more with his family mm-hmm. and he was so that was so important to him so i said you know I always said, you know, you're the one who decides, you know, the ball is in your court. And when he was getting thicker at the end, I said, okay, let's connect with your cardiologist. You know, I'm not making the decision. I'm going to present the facts. I'm going to tell your cardiologist, here's what's going on. And you and your cardiologist are going to make the decision of what are the next steps.
1: It sounds like to me, by the way, Catherine, that you actually provide palliative care for your patients, the way you help them understand their illness journey and, um, you know, uh, companion alongside them and uh, help them with their symptoms and ask really important questions and Elicit questions from them and you're watching the caregiver and you're trying to maximize both the length of life and their quality of life. And you remain, um, you know, focused on hope and also planning at the same time. I'm sorry. You sound like you're providing palliative care as a cardiologist. Would you agree with that? I, I, I would
2: say I agree with that, and I would say I'm going to quote my uncle who died of heart failure. So he was a surgeon. He was a gynec obstetrician-gynecologist, and he told me, he said, you know what, you can't fix this problem because, you know, surgeons, like, take the tumor out. They fix the
0: mm-hmm.
2: bladder or so on, and, and I said, no, the drugs we give you. Um, he says the drugs are are palliative and in a way. you know he was kind of right so we don't cure the disease necessarily because if you stop the drugs the disease comes back mm-hmm. and, and I said uh, that he was right uh, but you know we do a really good job at it and then at one point uh, unfortunately the drugs for some people don't work anymore and we want to make sure that they're as comfortable as possible. And they're with the people they they want to be with and they
0: love. -hmm. It sounds like this, with these new combination of drugs, it isn't that trajectory of, you know, keep going to hospital, that those intermittent exacerbations. It sounds like you can keep pity pretty stable until a point when, you know, their legs keep swelling and you can't manage. And then basically there's only so much we can do. There's only so many more tricks in the bag.
2: (laughs) I agree with you, Sam. I think we, we've we changed that curve that used to be kind of steeper than yeah. not deep and longer, and that it comes later, a bit like what yeah. uh, we were saying a bit earlier.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess it's still like as a listener, I'm just trying to figure out how would I know when I'm at the end, but it sounds like you've kind of answered that. There are you, you, your legs will swell, you'll, you'll be still be on the drugs, but your shortness of breath it will be harder for you to do all the things you would you'll sleep more like on the recliner because it's just too much energy. So that's a big signal. And as a family member, you need to be able to you need to know that, hey, I'm going to need to do all the meals, move them around, carry them to the bathroom and this and that because they can't, it's going to be physically difficult to do that. So home adjustment falls. These are all the kinds of things that we need to prepare for when you're in that late to crossing over to end stage. Is that right? Those are the uh, kinds of things,
2: you know, having a walker in AIDS and uh, maybe a PSW to help with, uh, with the daily uh, showers and all that.
1: Yeah. You know what I tell people um, about how they know when they're in the more advanced stage
0: um,
1: oh. is, you know, that overall, no matter what anyone does with respect to um, fine tuning their medications et cetera, et cetera, there comes a time where their body just cannot hold up to all of this any longer. And over time, from month to month to month, they will begin to exhibit a overall decrease in their stamina and their energy level and get more tired. And those are the kinds of things from a palliative care perspective that we track over time to tell us it's almost like a barometer of how where the person's at in their illness journey. Um, aside from the, um, the troughs and the peaks, we can step back and track how much they're dimming like a light switch over time. Uh, and that, um, A person who's starting to need more help from other people, they can't do the things they used to do. And it's not because they're just having a bad day, or they're in an exacerbation. It's the baseline is decreasing over time. When the baseline decreases over time, it's a telltale sign that a person is moving through the heart failure chapters with all the other things that have been mentioned, like refractory leg swelling or breathlessness, needing opioids to help with symptoms, and the medications needing to come down because the person can't tolerate them, and the diuretics are going up because um, the baseline diuretics weren't working. All of these are signs that someone's moving through the heart failure journey.
0: I'd like to end our interviews with asking, you: is there any advice you have for for patients and families as they start this journey?
2: I think uh, it's keep the conversation going. You know, make sure you talk to your family doctor, you talk to your cardiologist, you ask questions, uh, you make sure you're on the right medication. And when things are getting worse, you know, make sure you get the... uh, the, 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 ask your questions and make sure you 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 have the answers. I think that's really important. And and uh, uh, trying to you know take your medication. So that's what we want. We want patients to, as much as they can to take their medication because we know that it it delays uh, the the
1: bad part of the heart failure.
0: Thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Catherine. That okay. was great. It's right Thank exactly you. what we needed. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, WaitingRoomRevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join in. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shopa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa.